stand with me as we read God's word together. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your deliverance. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your gospel. We pray that the gospel be effective in the lives of, of our families, in the lives of us first, the lives of our, our households and the people we know and we love. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Recently, my son had some parenting advice for me, a hot parenting opinion. Uh, he said, you know, Dad, whenever I have kids, uh, I'm going to make sure they learn the piano. I wish you had done a better job <laughs> with my piano lessons. I said, you weren't there. Okay, you were there, but, but you don't remember, uh, son. Uh, whenever, we, whenever we tried to help you learn how to play the piano, we would hear sounds coming from the room. And uh, one time, one time, and we tried to stay on it, and, and one time the, the piano teacher came for the lesson and she said, show me what you've been working on. And you took off your socks and shoes and began to play the piano with your toes <laughs> because that's what you've been working on this week. We decided your talents lay elsewhere. Um, <laughs> we could have pushed, we could have pushed, but we, we thought, no, that's, <laughs> that's expensive. That's expensive for toe playing. Uh, no, I mean, he had, he had a good point. And, and honestly, you know, maybe we should have. I don't know. Uh, but, but you weren't there either, so don't judge. <laughs> was, 
my, my son actually, my, my kids do have some good parenting. I'm, I'm teasing. They do have some good parenting advice. And as, as we've talked to them about mistakes that we've made as parents, I've been really encouraged to hear some of the things that they've, they've thought about. I mean, we, we should have done this differently as a family, or we should have done, done this differently. And, and part of getting older, I think, is, is there's kind of a two-pronged thing. One, you have to be humble as, as a parent to say, okay, I, I do need to listen to people who are younger than me. Sometimes there can be a tendency as we get older to say, well, you, you don't know because you don't have kids my age or whatever, and say, you know what? I, I do need to listen to people as they, they bring biblical principles to me. There are people who are younger than me that have some great words of wisdom for me as a parent, be it my, my children or be it uh, Phil in the youth ministry. I, I need to learn from these people. And, and also, also, I have a desire to learn from people who are older than me, people who have had children at, at different stages than, than my children are at yet, and to, to learn from them what it's like to parent older teens or what it's like to, to even begin to parent adult children. That's, that's something I need to learn. Why? Because my, my ultimate desire as a parent is to glorify God, but what do I want God to do in my family? I, I want him to do something only he can do. I desire God, through my parenting, to bring my children to, to places of repentance from sin and, and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I desire God to do. That's the most important thing all of us would want God to accomplish through our parenting. This passage has a very interesting focus. We often talk about this story being the story of the Philippian jailer, and it, and it begins that way. But really, as you look at the text closely, you see that this story is about the salvation of a, of a household. It is very much focused not just on an individual, but upon a house, upon a, a family, a home. That's the focus of the text. And here's the, the central idea that I want us to think about this morning. I want us to see as we look at this text that God's plan of redemption is a plan not just for individuals, but for entire households as well. God has a plan to redeem individuals, yes, but God also has a redemptive plan for the family. And I'm going to be using the word family and household interchangeably. Let me just give a, a little bit of some, some, some caveats before we continue this morning. One, just know I'm, I'm using the word household broadly. Whenever you and I think of a household, we think of mom, dad, brother, sister, puppy dog, something like that. We kind of think of this very nuclear family as the New Testament uses the, the term household or, or family. It's often thinking more broadly than just mom, dad, brother, sister. It can include servants and slaves, freedmen, people who are working the home. And so as we think about this, maybe you'd say this morning, okay, I'm, I'm not part of a family, I'm, I'm single, or maybe you'd say I'm, it's just uh, me and my spouse, or our kids are gone, or maybe you're a, a younger person or older person, I'm not sure if this applies to me as I think of a, a family. It, it does, and we're, using, we're thinking of household in a, a broader sense, kind of including your, your, social, your close social network, those who are closest to you and in terms of your life. And it has applications to the smaller family as well. But, but think, of, think of the family and the household a little bit more broadly this morning. And then also another kind of caveat I would give as we begin this morning is just this. I know that some of you are just, just feeling the, the pain this morning of having people that you love in your household who have not yet placed their faith in, in Jesus Christ for their salvation. 
And I want you to know that, that none of us bear that pain in the same way perhaps as, as you do, but as part of, of this community of faith, we, we bear that load with you. Your, your pain, not to the same degree, but in, in the same sense of we desire to see those who are part of our, our community of faith place their faith in Jesus Christ, their, their households place their faith in Jesus Christ. We, we want to share in that pain with you this morning. We also want to share in the hope of the gospel with you this morning as you think about those in your life who haven't yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we also want to share the joy with you as we believe God and his faithfulness will, will act. So we want to think about that this morning. God's plan of redemption is a plan not just for individuals, but for entire households as well. He does redeem individuals, but he has plans for communities as well, households, families, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and place their faith in him. And we cling to him and hope as we pray for salvation. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the lost family, the saved family, and the churched family. The lost family, the saved family, and the church family as we, as we look at the story of the Philippian jailer and his household. Again, it starts with this, this man as an individual, but you see very quickly there's these applications and implications for the broader family as well. So let's first of all, let's look at the lost family. And there's, there's three thoughts that I want us to, to consider as we look at verses 25 through 30. The first thought that I want us to consider together is this. A family may hear but ignore the gospel. And we'll see how this relates to the, the whole context of the story as we continue to go. But look at verse 25. Remember what's happened. Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison. Remember, there's that accusation. Look earlier in the text in chapter 16. Remember in verse 19, the owners of this poor young woman who, whenever the demonic spirit is cast out of her, they see that their hope of profit is, has left them. And so they take Paul and Silas to the marketplace before the rulers and they throw this accusation at them in verse 21, excuse me, the last part of verse 20, these men are Jews, one, they're disturbing our city, two, three, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so as the crowd gets agitated, Paul and Silas are thrown into this prison and they're, they're placed in these stocks and this would have been a very uncomfortable position for them to be in and there they are in the prison and the night begins to pass. It says it's about midnight and they're in, in prison Paul and Silas are doing something that is not normal for prisoners to do. It's normal for Christians to do, but not prisoners. They're praying and singing, singing hymns, and the other prisoners are listening. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we see that Christians pray at, at very important times. They're, they're constantly praying. They're, they pray before they appoint men to offices. They pray as they begin mission journeys. They pray when they're persecuted. There's a constant state of, of prayer that this early church continues under. And here, they're in prison doing what they have been doing. They're, they're singing. They're praying. The hymns are sung. Now, are people listening to them? Later, we see that the jailer has been asleep. So here they are. They're in a dark place. They're singing hymns, and their hymns are making, it would seem, zero impact on the jailer. He could care less, couldn't care less about what Paul and Silas are, are doing or singing or whatever. 
as the representative of the family in the story, at this point in the story, that the jailer is, is hearing what's going on, but, but pretty, pretty unimpressed, not all that interested. It may feel to you as well, at times like you're in a, a dark place, uh, singing hymns to a world that does not care. Uh, keep singing, right? Keep singing. Second thought I want us to consider as we look at these verses, a family may be graciously brought by God to a time of despair. So Paul and Silas are are in the prison. They're singing. The jailer's asleep. The other prisoners are listening to what's going on. And and then it says here in verse 26, it says, suddenly there's a a great earthquake. There's this this, this shaking of the ground. It, It affects even the foundations of the prison. I don't think most of us have, maybe some of us have been in an earthquake. I think there was an earthquake in this area like 2004 or something. There was a little earthquake 70, 80 miles away. And uh, Whitney and I were, were uh, asleep at the time. It was like 6 in the morning, and we could feel like this, this, this deep, deep shaking. It was this really freaky feeling, right? There, there's nothing you can do to control it. And, but here, there's, there's this earthquake that's, that's, that's shaking the very foundation of the, the prison. Perhaps it's localized even to just this, this one spot. And, and the, it says the, the foundations of the prison are, are shaken and the, the doors are opened and everyone's bonds are unfastened. There's this miraculous work by God to allow the, the prisoners to be free. The jailer is, is awoken by this, this shaking. And he's roused out of his sleep, verse 27, and, and he looks around. He's felt the earthquake, and, and now he, he looks around, and, and apparently he's not able to see very clearly, but he can see enough to know that the doors are open. And maybe he can see the, some of the sh- chains or something, can, can see that they're not fastened to prisoners as they were before. And he realizes that this, this earthquake has not only shook his life literally, but, but figuratively, figuratively as well. The penalty for allowing a, a prisoner to escape is, is death. And the jailer has not just let one prisoner escape, but presumably all of them. He had been in a position of, of relative prominence. He's head of a household. He has a secure income. He has this, uh, this, this place of some sort of social status. His, his life is together one moment. He goes to sleep, and when he wakes up, his entire life has, has come crumbling down around him. He, he looks around, and he realizes the prisoners are gone. My life is over. And he also, and, and you have to understand this culture of honor and shame, he has also experienced incredible shame. He has failed in his job in the most monumental way possible. Again, not only one prisoner, but every prisoner is now gone. And, and he realizes, according to this, this deceived thinking that he has, he, he, he realizes, he comes to the conclusion, my life is over, my family is going to experience this shame. There's only one option available for me to, to maintain some sort of level of honor. I need to end my own life. He has reached this place of incredible despair. His life literally is over. The conclusion he reaches is, I need need to end it on my own terms to, to preserve my honor. 
before we continue, remember what we talked about last week. We, we talked about how this is a culture that is, that is deceived. The, the demonic realm is, is, is strong here. The demonic realm desires to deceive and destroy. Some of you have been brought into some dark places and, and you're hearing deceptive words about where your life is. The enemy would, would love to confront you with a taste of the enormity of, of your sin and, and, and to give, fill you with a sense of despair and to offer you deceptively a way out of that despair. And maybe some of you are at that point this morning. I just want to offer some words of encouragement to you. Paul is, is here for the jailer, and he, he cries out, says, you know, don't harm yourself. Don't do what you're thinking of doing. And, and oftentimes, what we need in times when we're in dark places and the enemy is trying to convince us of, of how we are out of options, we need some voices to say, hey, 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 don't despair. Don't harm yourself. Let's think rightly and biblically. The, the voices that are saying to harm ourselves are demonic voices, not the voice of the Lord. Again, sometimes we can be confronted with the reality a partial reality of the, the depth of our sin while not being shown that the hope that is in Christ. And I would just encourage you, please, to, to talk with, we'd love to talk with you and be a, a voice to kind of continually remind you, perhaps as you're in some dark places, of the hope that is in Christ, not to be deceived. Again, in the, in the text here, Paul stops and he says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer, look, in the text here, says he, he calls for some light and he, he, uh, he, he rushes in, he, literally it says he, he, as he calls for life, he, he jumps in, and he's, he's trembling with fear. Now, where a moment before, it seemed like his life was over, now there's this glimmer of hope, and he brings out Paul and Silas from the prison, and he falls down before them, and he says these words in verse 30, these very famous words from Acts 16, verse 30. He looks at them, falls down before them, and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and as he says those words, he's not just thinking about, look, how do I get out of this, this mess that I'm in with my boss? I've got a prison full of uh, open doors and uh, you know, chains off prisoners. He's not just saying, how do I get out of this, this mess? But he, he recognizes spiritually what's taking place. The, the gospel singing that he's heard, the the, 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 the incredible event that God has just brought about, he recognizes that something has taken place here, and in his despair, he cries out for help. And that's the third thought that I want us to think about as we think about the lost family. A family in their time of crisis may be forced to cry out for answers as they recognize their need. As we think about families, even within our church, and as I talk with some of you about the situations in which God has, has placed you, or as when I talk, or when I talk with people who are new believers, and I talk with them about their, their stories of conversion, or we hear people share their baptism stories, what, what comes through over and over again? I, I was brought to this place of despair. And in this time of despair where it seemed like there was no way out, I cried out to God. There was no place else left for me to turn, and I cried out to God, and he revealed his son Jesus Christ to me. For those of you who are believers, I would just say this. Look, let's be in those places 
where there is hurting, where there's pain, where there's darkness, and, and let's sing. Recognize that God has placed you in that prison cell. God has placed you in that time of suffering. He's placed you in that, that, that furnace of affliction so that in that place you can pray and sing and be a gospel witness to those who are in a situation of, of lostness. And, for, and maybe there are some of you this morning who would say, I, I am lost. I, I'm, I'm the jailer here. I have, I have been brought to a, a place where there, there's no other option for me. My, my life that I've kind of constructed for myself has, has come to a conclusion. Like there's, there's, there's no way forward on this path that I've kind of been trying to, to create for myself. This, this path is not a path that's going to lead to what I thought it was going to lead. And, and now I'm at a, I'm, there's, it's not even a crossroads, it's just a cliff. Perhaps that's God's kindness to you. Instead of you encountering that cliff in eternity, he's allowing you to encounter it this morning and say, okay, look, this path is going to lead to destruction. Let's turn from this path and, and cry out to me. And let the words of the jailer be your words this morning as well. What must I do to be saved? How can I be delivered from an eternity without Christ? That brings us to the second thing I want us to think about this morning. That's the saved family. The saved family. Listen to the response here. And again, there's three things that I want us to, to consider as we look at the saved family. The, the, the text turns from this individual to, this, to his whole household very quickly. The first thing I want us to see is that a family, number one, a family must hear the gospel. For a family to be saved, for a family to experience the redemption that God desires to bring it, they, they need to hear the gospel. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and all your household. Now, as we talk about how a family needs to hear the gospel, there's kind of some things about this gospel message your family needs to hear. One, understand that the gospel is a simple message. Look at verse 31 with me and, and look at what Paul says. Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This, there's not a very, it's not a very complicated message, is it? Now, there's some, some questions you might have about it. You say, okay, well, well who is Christ? Uh, who is Jesus, what do I need to know about this person I'm believing in? In fact, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to, to trust? So I, I need to know who Jesus is. I need to, to know what it means to trust in him, to, to believe in him, to, to save me. I'm no longer believing in myself. I'm trusting this Jesus alone. And we also need to know what does the word saved mean? Like being saved from what? what is, what's the penalty that I'm being saved from? So we recognize, okay, I need to, as I say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Understand I'm being saved from my sins, I deserve to die for my sins and spend eternity in hell apart from God. Jesus Christ, perfect God, fully God, fully man, came, lived a perfect life for me, took the penalty of my sins for me, and now I, I trust in him, I believe in him, and I'm saved. That's, that's a simple message. It's not a complicated message. We also see, as we think about how a family must hear the gospel, it's a simple message, and it's also a, a hopeful message. Again, look at what Paul and Silas say. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, that idea of household doesn't just mean dad, mom, sister, brother. It's, it's broader than that. One person writes this. A household is not just dad, mom, brother, sister, but also slaves, freedmen, servants and laborers, sometimes even business associates and, and tenants, people who'd be living in the house there with them. 
Remember, Cornelius gathers his friends and, and family, and that, that, that gathering in his home might be considered his, his household. It, so as you think about your household, it is your immediate family, the, the people you, you live with, but it might also be broader than that. It might be children who are long, longer living at home, or, or maybe in, in some senses it's some close work associates as well, or some very close friends. It's a broad definition, I think, here in the New Testament as we think about how it applies to our culture. Now, as we think about this message to the household, it's, no, no, it, it's hopeful, right? He says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be saved, you and your household. The question we might have then is, is how applicable is that promise to me? We know this isn't an absolute guarantee. We can't save every member of our household once one person has believed the gospel. But I think these are some words that can provide comfort for you and I as well. In Acts 2, remember Peter says, this is a message for you and, and your children. This is a message of the gospel. is is not just for you, but that God has a redemptive plan for families as well. And my friend, again, uh, Doug Vanmeter wrote a, a bit about this, and I think he wrote some really encouraging things about how we can think biblically about the gospel relationships God desires us to have with our, our kids and other people who are part of our, our, our close social network. He says, we can't assume that because we're Christians, people in our family will be as well. It's not, it's not a promise in that sense. But as he writes, parents have plenty of biblical reason to embrace a sure confidence that they can raise their children in such a way that God will save them. He says we shouldn't be pessimistic nor presumptuous as we think about sharing the gospel. But we should have hope, hope in Christ to do the saving work that only he can do through the work of his spirit. So a family needs to hear the gospel right? And this is a simple message, and it's a hopeful message, and it's a preached message. Look at the, the text again here. It says, it says that they spoke the word of the Lord, verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now, you say, well, how did the house get there so quickly? Maybe the jailer lived very close to the prison. Maybe the, the the place in which he lived was adjacent to the prison. There had been this earthquake, and so the, the family comes out. And maybe that's even why Paul mentions the household in verse 30, but, or 31. But for whatever, whatever the case, they're, they're close at hand. And as, as Paul and Silas are brought out of the prison, they begin to share the word of the Lord to the jailer, and they share the word of the Lord to all those who are in his house. The gospel, the word of the Lord, is a preached message. The people in his family are not going to be saved by his faith. Each of them have to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. I'd encourage you to think through this, this question very carefully. How can I help my household, household in a broad sense, my friends, my, my co-workers that I'm close with, people that I live with, how can I help them hear the gospel? Aunts, uncles. The gospel is a preached message. Paul and Silas need to explain the word the Lord, the text tells us. How can I, how can I be faithful to, to make sure that my family hears the gospel? Dads, I'd encourage you, be leading your family. If you have children who are still at home, be leading your family in times of, of reading God's word together, talking about the gospel as you read through the word of the Lord together. 
explaining what the gospel means. I'd encourage you to, to be involved in, in the church, to, to be involved in attending the church, to be attending a gospel-preaching church. I was uh, talking with, with one family recently, and they were talking about how they had been traveling over several weeks, and, and they, had, they had left uh, one church one Sunday morning, and, and the church had not been a church in which the, the Bible w- was being preached. And their, their kids had kind of started to notice the difference between some churches where the Bible was the kind of the content of the teaching and and churches where maybe the, the Bible wasn't the, the center of the te- time of, of teaching. Instead, it was just kind of like stories and thoughts. And as they, they, as they left, uh, their daughter said to, to the dad, she said, um, hey, dad, don't take us to a church like that again, right? Uh, take us to a church where we're going to hear the word of God. And it's, it's, I was talking to someone else who's getting ready to, to be gone this weekend. They're saying, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to find a church where my family can hear God's word taught. And, and by the way, that's important. That's important, not just for this time right now, because let's be honest, maybe not all of your kids are going to be engaged in listening to me perfectly, uh, just like some of you as well uh, right now. Um, it, it's hard. I get it, right? But in a church where we're all taking God's word seriously, we're saying, look, God's word is, is the source that we're going to go to to understand the gospel, that's going to permeate into other ministries as well. It's going to be in the Sunday school ministry. It's going to be in the conversations we have in the hallway. It's going to affect our adult Sunday school classes. It's going to affect our our youth group. It's going to affect Awanas. It's going to affect all the ministries that we do throughout the week. You need to have your family, your household, and encourage them to be a part of a church in which God's word is going to be taught. You need to be involved in discussions with your family, your household about spiritual things. You can talk about baseball. You can talk about football. Can you talk about God and gospel truths? I was reading a survey from 2009. It's interesting. It showed that of those who responded to the survey, 75% of people who identified themselves as Christians indicated that they placed their faith in Jesus Christ before their 21st birthday, which there's nothing all that remarkable about that. In fact, the majority of those had done so before the age of 13. But what was interesting to me was this, and again, I think church attendance is hugely important for us in proclaiming the gospel to our households and and being a part of gospel communities. But listen to this, 90% of those who had professed faith in Christ pointed to a conversation with a family member or friend as as the the moment in which they placed their faith in, in Jesus Christ. In other words, wasn't the sermon wasn't an evangelistic event through the youth group. It was conversations with mom or dad or one-on-one with the teacher. It was, it was much smaller. We need to be having these gospel conversations. The gospel is a, a family must hear the gospel. Then here's the, here's the next thing I want us to think. A family not, must not only hear the gospel, a family must respond to the gospel. A family must respond to the gospel. Look at verse 33. It says, the, it says they, they speak the word of the Lord, verse 32, to him and all who are part of this house. And then it says in verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. Again, he and all his family. There's this emphasis on the entire family. Uh, the jailer is not baptized for the family, neither is his faith sufficient for the family. Each person must believe. 
And there can be a false sense of security that some Christians have because they say, okay, you know what? Mom and dad are part of Bethany Community Church or my kids are part of this other really good church. And so I, I don't need to worry about my faith because I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm part of this family that's a really good Christian family. Or if you talk to someone about their testimony, say, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. They say, well, my, my parents are Christians. And so, you know, I feel like I'm kind of part of that as well by, you know, uh, really, good, really good relationships with them. But what we see is that each person, even though God works redemptively in families, has a plan for that, each person who's part of a family must respond to the gospel. Something very interesting, right? Notice the progression of of the household. The the household is mentioned four times in these verses. First, the, the, the household is promised salvation, and then the house, the whole household hears the gospel. And then the whole household believes the gospel and is baptized. And then the entire household rejoices. So that the whole group is part of each, each component of this progression. Now, I say this. Uh, there's something else we need to touch on here, I think. Uh, we are a church that, that draws heavily on uh, Presbyterian theologians, right? In fact, if you look at a lot of the resources that we use. Sometimes we use more Presbyterian resources than we do Baptist resources as a, as a Baptist church. And uh, lesser some, what well, we sang a Lutheran song this morning. It's Reformation Day. So go Lutherans, some Lutherans too. Um, you know, so we have some, you know, we, we have some, some brothers and sisters who are part of different denominations whose resources we really appreciate, right? Now, in, fa- in fact, if you were to ask me, hey, recommend five books about a topic, probably at least two of them would, would be by some Presbyterian authors at, at this point. We, we agree a lot with some very strong Presbyterian theologians, conservative Presbyterian theologians on issues like the gospel. But when it comes to this text, and I say this because some of the resources I give you may get this text wrong, um, when it comes to this text, sometimes people look at this and say, well, look, there's, there's households being baptized here, and they want to argue, well, if households are being baptized, that means infants must be being baptized as well. And I'd, I would say, look, this is not a great text for those who want to argue that households in the New Testament means that you should baptize infants. Look, at, look what the text is saying. This is a text about salvation being promised to a group, and then that, that same group hearing the gospel, that same group responding to the gospel, and that same group rejoicing in the gospel. So it's, it's the whole group that's at, at every phase, right? So whoever has the ability to hear and understand the message is that same people who are believing it and the same people who are being baptized. In fact, John Frame, who's a, a would believe in baptizing infants, he looks at this text, he says, look, there aren't infants in the text, but um, it is a text that he would say uh, links profession of faith with ba- of an individual with baptism. And he says this, though. He says that the point here is that God is gathering families, not just individuals, into his kingdom. And I would agree with that. We see here an emphasis on the household responding to the gospel, which we want to see as well, right? But, but. This is the important, this is the problem, not just for Presbyterians, but for Baptists and and Lutherans and Methodists and whoever else, right? We cannot, as a family responds to the gospel, we cannot rely upon the faith of our parents. We cannot rely upon the faith of our brother. We cannot rely upon the faith of our, our cousin. Each of us must respond to the gospel message. And God, I believe in his graciousness, brings families to 
receive that gospel message as individuals, but also as part of a family unit. God redeems families, and each family member must individually respond to that gospel message. It's, it's a beautiful truth here. Here's the third thing we need to see as we look at these verses. Number three, a family must rejoice in the gospel. A family must rejoice in the gospel. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says this. It says, he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household. So again, you see the whole household again, that he had believed in God. And that, that phrase, along with his entire household, it can be either referring to the rejoicing or to the believing. Here's how the New, Inter- New English translation translates verse 34, which I think is a little bit better here. It says, the jailer brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly that he had come to believe in God together with his entire household. So the jailer is, is the head of this family, believes in God, and then the whole family believes in God as well and rejoices in that belief and experiences the joy of the gospel. And Luke, as he, as he goes through both Luke and Acts as he talks about salvation, often talks about just the joy in salvation. The family here is rejoicing in the gospel. As we think about this, we recognize that the Philippian jailer experienced something that maybe some of us have not experienced yet. The Philippian jailer experiences this, this joy where the whole family is brought to a crisis at one point and the whole family hears the word of the Lord at the same time and they all believe it and they're all baptized and, and they, they all experience joy. Again, joy in Luke and Acts is, is linked to, to believers, believers who, who've experienced salvation. They're the ones who experience joy. So it's the whole household. The whole household is promised salvation. The whole household uh, hears the gospel, believes the gospel, rejoices in the gospel. Some of you are not in that position this morning. Some of us are, are experiencing the pain of, there, there are people we love who have not yet responded to this gospel message. There's a, a joy for some of us that's a joy deferred. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 13 that I think reflects some of our hearts this morning. How long, O Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? We see the words of Paul from Romans 9 echoed as, as he has unceasing anguish in his heart for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, consider me, the psalmist says, consider me and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He says, in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, your, your hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So there's this, this moment right now where we are existing in, in pain and sorrow as we think about our household who and members of our household who have not yet believed the gospel. And we, and we cry out to God. And this is a good prayer that all of us who are part of Bethany Community Church should be praying because all of us know people who are part of our households or households of people we love who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We should be crying out out, how long, O oh Lord? How, how long will it be until we see the joy of these other people experiencing your salvation? And we should say, along with the psalmist, I've, I've trusted in your, your hesed, your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice. Like right now, I'm going to rejoice in your future salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so we are this morning trusting in God for his present and his future salvation. God, God saves household. He has redemptive plans for families, and we, and we trust in that. We trust in his goodness. We trust for him to do what he will do. And as we trust in that, we continue to do the things that he's called us to do, proclaiming the gospel, singing the gospel in dark places, being lights for those who are parts of our community. Here's the last thing I want us to touch on. We're just going to touch on this quickly, like a pastor quickly, um, because uh, we're going to come to this later as we go- talk about the, the Christian in, in, in government. But look at verses 35 through 40. The, the magistrates tell the police, hey, go to the jail and, and let Paul and Silas go. And so they go and they tell the jailer, and the jailer comes to Paul and Silas. And he's like, hey, guys, good news. You can go. Go in peace. And Paul says, no, we are not going to go in peace. We're Roman citizens. And what's happened has been, has been shameful. You've treated us shamefully. You don't, you don't secretly bind up Roman citizens, or you don't publicly bind up Roman citizens, beat them publicly, throw them in a prison, and then say, hey, will you please go away? You need to do publicly what, what you need to release us publicly just like you beat us publicly. Now, now why is that? Is, is this because Christians are supposed to stick it to the government when they have the opportunity? No, this, this is a gospel. This, this is gospel relevance. There are now t- at least two households, Lydia's and the Philippian jailer's household, who have responded to the gospel. They're, they're believing families now. And now they need a, a church context in which to worship and, and to experience the, the joy of, of Christian fellowship. And if there's a sense that Paul and Silas and their message is a, is a shameful message and against Roman custom and law, people are going to be hesitant to allow this church to exist and worship in peace. And so Paul's concern is a gospel concern here. He says, no, no, you need to publicly say that our message, this gospel message, is, is not contrary to Roman law, that you've, you've misjudged this situation. You need to do this publicly. And this allows the jailer's family and Lydia's family, and it's interesting, the text ends with all the brothers. He encourages them, and they're allowed to continue this, this ability to worship, and they're going to be a church that he can write to in the book of Philippians. We'll talk about that as we continue in the book of Acts. My dad's uh, gravestone has Psalm 78, verse 4, written on it, the, the last part of the verse. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he's done. Our salvation is an individual salvation in the sense that each of us must individually place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, if you are a person who's not done that this morning, my my urging my plea with you would be that today would be the day of salvation that you recognize the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and place your faith in him and him alone for your salvation but it's also a gospel message that is it's a message that has redemptive impacts not just on us as an individual but on us as, as families and my encouragement for you is as part of a household as part of a, a, a community that you recognize okay God is at work in this in this unit that I'm a part of. 
My relationship with God is not just this vertical relationship, but God is using me as a redemptive force in this, in this family, in this household. He's placed me here with these coworkers so that I can be this, this gospel presence that I'm going to trust in, in Christ to do his redeeming work in this, in this place that I am. He's placed me as a son to these parents who, who don't love the Lord so that I, I can be a, a gospel presence in their life and can continue to point them to the hope that is in Jesus. They can look at me singing hymns in the prison and they can rejoice in God someday as well. He's placed me as a, as a, a spouse in a marriage situation which my, my spouse doesn't love the Lord and God has a redemptive purpose for me here. My, my purpose is not just to have this individual relationship with God, but God has placed me in this marriage so that I can be this gospel presence, this, this gospel hope and joy to this person, this beautiful person that God has put in my life for their glory and redemption through Christ. That's the gospel to the family. We are part of households, not just to experience temporal blessings, but so that God in his grace can use us to bring about the redemption of those who we love through the work of his spirit, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray and ask God to be at work in our households. Father, as, as we look at this, this story, uh, we're, we're, we're partly just, perhaps if it's the right word, envious and if it's possibly godly envious that this this Philippian jailer experiences such quick redemption of his household we know that oftentimes your work is much more slow more deliberate it's a mustard seed that grows very slowly it's leaven that slowly leavens the whole loaf Father, you have placed us in these, these homes, and we believe that you have redemptive purposes for that. And so we, we pray that you would be at work through us. We, we pray that in our imperfections, in our, our failures as, as parents, as siblings, our, our failures as children, our, our ungodly attitudes in the workplace, that you would, you would redeem even those, you would cause us to repent and turn to you, and that, that people would see our, our trust in your son Jesus, and you'd give us the words to say to boldly proclaim him, that we would see the joy of having those we love place their faith in your son Jesus as they see that he is our great treasure that see he is our, our foundation when other foundations crumble. We pray that we would do this through the enabling work of your, your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.